passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. I told someone this past week, uh, feels like it's been forever uh, since I've, I've been able to, to preach and share God's word with you uh, this morning, so I'm, I'm happy to be able to do it again this morning. Um, I'm going to get right to the point. We are going to uh, spend a lot of time just looking at what is the church, what is the purpose of the church, why do we do the things that we do on Sunday mornings, um, why do we have life groups, why do we do church the way that we do church here in the United States, specifically here at Crosswinds. I think one of the things that, that over the last 18 months or so, if you consider the pandemic and uh, all of the, the stuff that resulted from that, I, I at least realized I had a very deficient understanding of the church, of what the church actually is and what we as a people are supposed to be doing. So I guess one of the, the silver linings, if you will, of, uh, of the pandemic is that it, it forced me to, to spend some time in God's Word, to dive in, to really see what does the Bible have to say about the church. And, and it wasn't just the, the pandemic, it wasn't just virtual church um, that led to this season of study. Um, a couple, about a month ago now, we, we had a, a church vote to, uh, to purchase a facility uh, a 15,000, 16,000 square foot facility on the north side of Spencer here, um, and that passed. And as as we were preparing for that, I <laughs> I was thinking, well, what's the purpose of of a 15,000 square foot facility if a 400 square foot sermon studio and office space would be sufficient? And uh, why can't we just purchase something that that we can produce content out uh, at and and send it out over the internet to those who who would consider Crosswinds their home. And I think the, 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 the answer to that is relatively obvious, but it's an important one to ask. And, and really what it, it did is it, it drove me back to the early church. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to actually look at 20 chapters in the book of Acts. If you're scared about how much we're going to be talking about, I am too, so it's okay, all right? <laughs> Don't worry about that. Uh, no, we're going to look at, at the early church uh, because as, as long as I can remember being a Christian, I've had some people who have said, you know what, we, we just need to get back to the way that the early church was doing things, the early church model, that we need to get back to this, this house church model, and if we do that, we're not only going to be more faithful to the Bible, but we're actually going to see some, some zeal and, and, and this boldness of faith that we actually see in other places around the world where house churches are necessary, places like Central Asia or in Southeast Asia. Asia. And this is a complex topic. And, and you look at the New Testament, and it doesn't give us a lot of structure. It doesn't give us a lot of form. It doesn't tell us exactly how we are supposed to do church, whether that is in homes or whether that is in larger gatherings. And when we do gather, what exactly are we supposed to do? When are we supposed to gather? Are we supposed to gather on Sundays? Are we supposed to gather at some other point during the week? And to, to answer those questions, I want us to just dive into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, all the way through Acts chapter 20, that's where we're going to be this morning. Don't worry, we're not going to, to go too in-depth by very necessity. But I just want us to, to open up God's Word and say, hey, what can we learn about the church? What can we learn about why we gather together as we open up 
God's word. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Before we do that, um, we're going to pray, uh, ask for God's presence to be with us, and that God would be the one who teaches us. So would you pray with me as we jump into God's word? Father, it is, uh, it is with great joy that we gather together in worship this morning. I thank you for every person here this morning, those who are joining virtually online. I know this, um, this is a, that you can use this study to, to address areas of deficiency, deficiency and weakness in, in my own life. And so I, I ask that you would do that, not just for me, but you would do that for each and every one of us this morning. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to love your church as imperfect as she may be, that you would help us to love your church because she is your bride, that she is the one for whom you died. God, we ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have not spoken highly of your bride, for when we have neglected the privilege of gathering with your people, with our family. God, for when we have not prioritized our participation in the gathering of your people. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would increasingly mold us into the image of your Son, including in how we think of and consider your church. Help us, we ask. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we look at the book of Acts, what you'll notice uh, in your sermon notes, if you're following along here, uh, I've kind of broken this apart into to three broad movements in the book of Acts. There's nothing magical or special about the way I've divided it up. I just felt like that if we could put it into bite-sized chunks, it would be easier for us to digest as opposed to there being anything special about the way that I've divided it up. So what I want us to do first is look at the church in Jerusalem. So the church starts in Jerusalem moments after, really, after Jesus rises from the dead and has ascended into heaven. We have a, a, this moment where the church, the, the disciples of Jesus begin gathering together. But before we get to that, we start with the very first verse of the book of Acts. And notice how Acts lays out this book. It says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So right here, and, and let's leave that up for, for a while, what we see here is that this is the second book that the author is writing. The, the Gospel of Luke is the, the part one, if you will, and Acts is the sequel to what Jesus is doing in the world. Notice this word began here. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So this is setting the stage for what the book of Acts is all about. It's saying that the gospel of Luke, the actual story of Jesus on earth and is his ministry, that is just the beginning of what Jesus is doing on earth. And the implication, of course, by that word began, is that the book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry, the continuation of all that Jesus is doing, all that Jesus is teaching. And as we look at the book of Acts, we see very clearly that Jesus and his ministry is not done, and that ministry is primarily done through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, but the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church. This verse is, is significant because it expands our understanding of what the church is because whatever else this verse means, it is very clear 
that God has an elevated view of the church, of the people of God gathered together. Acts isn't so much about God doing amazing things, miraculous things through individuals like Peter and Paul as much as it is about Jesus continuing to be at work in his body, the church. That God uses the church to accomplish his mission, his work in the world. There's no plan B. Jesus doesn't have a fallback plan. Whatever else the church is, first, this verse in the beginning of Acts makes it very clear that it is God's vehicle for ministry in the world. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's, let's just really try to de- define what this, this thing, the church, actually is. At its core, the word church just means assembly or, or gathering. So while we recognize that there are, are those who are part of Jesus, that we are oftentimes scattered throughout the world. We are scattered each week into the individual places where God has called us, whether that is as parents or as employees or as bosses or as co-workers, to go on to our various vocations, wherever God has us. At the core, the church are those who gather together. But maybe even more specifically than just this understanding of the church as those who are gathered, is more specifically the church are those that God himself gathers together. Several times in the book of Acts, it is very clear that God is the one who brings his people together. They are his people, and he is the one who is gathering them together. So as God is revealing to Paul in Acts chapter 18, Paul is entering into this city. He's about to do ministry, and God tells this to Paul. He says, I am with you. Go ahead and keep serving me. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In the context of Acts chapter 18, these people who are God's people are those who have not yet believed, but will believe when they hear the gospel message. How? Well, it's because God is the one who gathers the church, gathers them into the church. God alone is the only one who can bring people into his family. Notice Acts chapter 2, verse 47. It says this, praising God, having favor with all the people. And this is the summary statement. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. At its core, the church is those who are gathered together by God. One of the most common descriptions of the church in the book of Acts is the family of God. That Christians are brothers and sisters with one another because they are sons and daughters of God in the gospel. Acts chapter 1 verse 15 is the first of at least 25 times in the book of Acts where family language is used to describe the church. Peter is, descri- is about to talk to the, the church, these 120 people, at the beginning of the gospel, uh, excuse me, the beginning of the book of Acts. It says this, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, and he actually begins in the next verse. He begins by saying, brothers and sisters. He refers to them as his family. So 15 verses in to the God, into the book of, of Acts, we already have this weighty picture of God's view of the church. The church is the family of God that has been gathered together by God 
through which God continues to work. The church is the family of God that God himself has gathered together, and that's the primary means through which God is going to be at work in the world. That's what we see when we turn to Acts chapter 2 in the story of Pentecost. Pentecost is oftentimes thought of as the beginning of the official start of the church. It's where the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells the people of God, empowers the people of God. And one day in Acts chapter 2, we see that the number of people who follow Jesus blooms from about 120 people all the way to over 3,000. 3,000 is a lot of people. A lot of people who are now following Jesus. As you can imagine, gathering together 3,000 people is relatively difficult to get them all together in one spot. So almost from the very beginning of the church, by necessity, the church begins to meet in different homes. But that doesn't mean that the church never gathers together as a whole church. Take a look at Acts chapter 2 again. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. Notice right there, they attended worship together in the temple. All 3,000 of them, as many as were able, would gather together in the temple to worship God each and every day. A few chapters later, we see that their numbers are swelling even more. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5 tells us that God's number of followers, the the church, has actually bloomed to over 5,000 men, not including women and children, and they still don't neglect the importance of gathering all of them together, as many as are able to gather together. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So when the church is faced with this moment of of its first real conflict and crisis in the church, Acts chapter 6, they're getting too big for things to be done just without any sort of structure, and they decide, you know what, we need to to do something about this. There's this conflict that people are being neglected because of how big we are, And, and they don't say, okay, well, we're just getting too big, so let's go ahead and just split up. Everyone just go to your homes and just start a Bible study. That's not what takes place. Acts chapter 6, it tells us this. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Thousands of people are are gathered together for the first congregational meeting, and they meet in the temple to discuss how they can more effectively care for and love one another. And notice this is done by the leaders of the church. They're the ones who gather everyone together. They're the ones who who put forward the solution, and the people of God affirm that solution. But it's not just a, a small group. They don't go door to door to all of these various house churches. They say, hey, we all need to get together. We're going to do this in the temple. It's the only place big enough for all of us to gather together. You see this picture that the Bible gives us of the early church in Jerusalem. They still value the opportunity to gather together, not just in small fellowship groups in their homes, but together with the entire church whenever it is possible. We're soon going to see in the book of Acts that what constrains them 
from gathering altogether isn't a theological conviction about the house church model. It's simply just size constraints. They run out of buildings that are large enough for them to meet together in. It was relatively easy in Jerusalem for them to continue to meet, all thousands of them, because the temple was absolutely massive. But as the church begins to spread throughout Judea, throughout Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it begins to, to crop up in all of these little villages. The number of people who are able to gather together is limited primarily on how big of a building that God provided for them. But there's another factor that we see that plays into these church gatherings, and that is the outbreak of persecution. As persecution against the church begins to rise, notice what happens. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. For our intents and purposes, notice Saul's method here. It tells us that he goes house to house to house to arrest Christians. So Christians are continuing to meet, but because they could no longer do it in the thousands in the Jerusalem temple, they say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and continue to meet in various homes. And, and it's not as though they reach this conclusion that, hey, you know what, we actually don't need to gather together with everyone else at the same time. Notice what happens just a, a couple chapters later. Acts chapter 9, actually, just a chapter later, it tells us that persecution begins to die down. And the moment the persecution dies down, notice what happens. This is after the conversion of Paul. And when he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, because they're all gathered together. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Verse 31 there tells us that the church had peace, that the church was not just growing because of persecution, which took place at the beginning of, of chapter 8, but also it's, it's growing, it's blossoming, it's flourishing now that they have peace. And now that there's peace, that the persecution has begun to die down, they begin to gather together again. From the very beginning, the church recognizes that they're the family of God. And as the family of God, that they have been gathered together by God and, and they're the vehicle through which God will continue to work in the world. In fact, for them, it was, it was absolutely unthinkable to not meet with their family, to not meet with their brothers and sisters, because that was God's plan to reach the world. Now, in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, we see this shift. First seven chapters of the book of Acts focused on the church in Jerusalem, and although there's mention of the church in Jerusalem after that moment, we actually see that the church begins to spread. 
Because of persecution, the church begins to, to crop up in all of these villages in Judea and Samaria, beyond the walls of Jerusalem. So what can we learn from church practices from the church beyond Jerusalem? Let's go ahead and take a look at, at Acts 9 through 12. We already saw that the church began to meet in homes once they were no longer only in Jerusalem. They didn't have this massive temple in which they could continue to gather for worship, but that doesn't mean that they neglected gathering for worship whenever possible. The question is, where did they gather? And the answer is, in local synagogues. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, just with some of them, but several hundred years before Jesus was on the earth, before the church began, the Jewish people were scattered across the known world. To that point, their worship had centered on the temple. That if you were going to worship God, you would worship him primarily in the temple. But then the temple was destroyed, and so this new form of worship began. It was called synagogue worship. And local synagogues began to crop up wherever there was a sizable enough community of Jewish people to gather. And so throughout the known world, all of these synagogues began to appear. And people would begin to gather together for worship on Saturday mornings because that was the Sabbath. And by the time of Jesus, and you, you just read through the Gospels, you'll see that Sabbath worship services were very common. They were just a part of life by the time that Jesus is on the earth. In fact, we actually know that their, their service structure was relatively established by that time as well. We see that this service included singing. It included praying. It included hearing the word of God read aloud. It, incur, it included the exposition of God's word or, or a sermon. And when, when these Christians began to crop up all over the known world, at first most of them were Jewish. And since Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel, of the Jewish people, they would continue to gather together for worship in the synagogues on Saturday mornings alongside Jews who weren't Christians. And this actually became a part of Paul's missionary strategy. As Paul is going to a new area, he, he would go to a community he knows nothing about. He knew that as long as there's a synagogue, there's a crowd that is going to be gathered on Saturday mornings. And so he would go to that service, and then he would share the gospel. Actually, from the Old Testament, he would share how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they are looking at on Saturday morning services. But if there wasn't a, a synagogue for people to gather in, they would, they would actually begin to gather in their largest home that was available to them. This is what we see in Acts chapter 10, that the, the church begins first in Jerusalem, and then it spreads to Judea and Samaria, but then it goes to the Gentiles, these people who are not followers of the Jewish religion. And we get Acts chapter 10, that God is breaking in to this new area with Cornelius and his family, and it says this, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. It's this crucial moment in the book of Acts because here we see that in this moment, God reveals that Gentiles could worship him and they didn't have to become a Jew first. And therefore, they didn't have to join the Jewish worship in the synagogue. And so the, the church outside of the walls of Jerusalem, they met for worship in synagogues, but they also met for worship in large homes where people could, could gather all of the believers together. 
What did they do when they gathered together? Well, we see this from verse, chapters 9 through 12 as well. I already mentioned the, the structure of synagogue worship, gathering for, for singing, prayer, hearing the word of God, a sermon. What did Christian worship look like? We get a glimpse in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 tells us about this church in Antioch, um, quite a bit further north than Jerusalem, and it was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And in this church, a lot of stuff, good stuff is happening. The apostles hear about what God is doing in the church in Antioch, and so they send a representative. His name is Barnabas. They send Barnabas from Jerusalem up to the church in Antioch to help, it lead, help lead it so it doesn't go astray. And then Barnabas gets there, and he realizes that the most important thing that this church needs is teaching. What's more, he realizes that he can help lead this church, but there's someone even better who could lead this church and give them exactly what they need. And so he goes on this little journey to find someone who will help the church even more. Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great number of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So churches gather together, Barnabas realizes that what they most desperately need isn't this focus on fellowship. It's not small groups. It's teaching on the Word of God, hearing how the Word of God applies into their lives in the here and now. And the church in this moment is doing what it's been doing from the very inception, from Acts chapter 2. They're gathering together to hear the Word of God and apply it to their lives. Acts chapter 2, right after the church is formed, notice the core of their gatherings. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Throughout the ages, the church has gathered together, and as they have done so, they have devoted themselves to fellowship. They have devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the remembrance of what Jesus has done for them in communion. They also have devoted themselves in the early church to the prayers or, or observing the Jewish hours of prayers at morning, afternoon, and evening. But notice what else they devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the gospel message, to hearing the word of God proclaimed by the apostles. And here we see this crucial description of what the early church did as the church gathered together, central to its gatherings from the very beginning has been the proclamation of the word of God. Central from the very beginning has been the proclamation of the word of God. We live in a day and age that places a great deal of value on dialogue and very little value on proclamation. It is a lot easier to go to a Bible study and discuss what God's word means and apply it to our lives, and that's a crucial, vital, important thing. But from the very beginning, the church is gathered to hear the word of God proclaimed, spoken to them. Not a conversation, not a dialogue, but proclamation of the word of God. First, it was through the apostles, but then as the church grew, it was through men who were called, just like Barnabas, 
later, it was Paul who would exposit the word of God for the church so that they would grow increasingly to be like Jesus. This is true for the early church that was meeting in Jerusalem. It was true for the early church meeting beyond Jerusalem. It was true for the church that became increasingly Gentile, this emphasis on hearing and applying the word of God. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to Acts chapters 13 through 20, the church among the Gentiles, see what we can learn. So Paul is, is now, he's traveling throughout Asia Minor and beyond, bringing the gospel message to these people. And the church continues to gather for worship in synagogues when they are able to do so. Notice that they gather for Sabbath worship. Acts chapter 13. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Skip forward to, to verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they're gathering together for Sabbath worship services. This isn't just a missionary strategy, even though it is that. And it's not just because Christians were primarily Jews at first, which is also true. It's because they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that Jesus was and is the key to understanding the Old Testament, that you can't understand the Old Testament without understanding who Jesus is. And so as the church is growing throughout the Roman Empire, there's this increasing need for structure, and the apostles can't be everywhere at once, and so they call these qualified men to begin to serve as the leaders, and I would use the language of guardians of the church, called elders. This is what Paul does as he's going through these different communities. Acts chapter 14, Paul goes strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So notice Paul's focus here when he gathers with the church it's to strengthen and to encourage the disciples especially because there's hardship coming on applying how to live out the gospel when hardship is coming their way and a point of a part of doing that is appointing these elders those who would be able to continue to carry the mantle of strengthening and encouraging the church the disciples as they continue to gather together chapter later Churches gathered together in Antioch to hear the teaching of the apostles. There's this big moment, Acts chapter 15, where the apostles gathered together, church leaders gathered together in Jerusalem to, to decide or to follow God's will on what it means to be a Christian. And they write a letter for all of the churches that weren't there. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And this letter is sent out to all of these churches. Notice that the church in Antioch gathers together. And what did they gather together for? Acts chapter 15. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Notice again the emphasis here on encouragement and strengthening through teaching. The teaching of the apostles, the message of the gospel. 
focus of this teaching is for encouragement, it's for application. Church all over the world, wherever it is, gathers to hear the word of God. As they went on their way through their cities, they delivered to them first the observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the church was strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. As Paul continues to travel, these new churches crop up in these Gentile communities. He continues to teach them the gospel. No matter where the church is, no matter where it is found, it is strengthened by the word of God. And the church continues to gather together in the places that it has available to them. Oftentimes, it would be the synagogue. Other times, it would be in the largest homes of a church member, so that way everyone could gather together. Oftentimes, it was outdoors, such, in, such as in Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And just a few verses later, after there's a church, as we were going to the place of prayer, again, we met, were met by a slave girl and you can read the rest there for yourself. The emphasis is there's this place outside of the city walls where the church gathers together. Other times it wasn't a home. It wasn't an outdoor space. It wasn't a synagogue. It was actually just a large meeting area. So we read in the church in Ephesus, they gathered together in this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, being Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Hall of Tyrannus, probably a lecture hall where this guy Tyrannus taught philosophy. So if you ever wondered if there was biblical precedent for meeting in a school building, there you go, already here in the book of Acts. See, we were biblical when we were meeting at the school. Throughout Acts, no matter where the church was found, the emphasis isn't on where the church gathers together. It's simply that the church gathers together. And if it's possible that all of them gather together in one group. In many communities, the church was small enough that they were able to meet in a large house. Like in Colossae, they met in this man Philemon's house, 50 or so together. Other communities, it was in a larger area because a larger area was available. Now, one thing I, I want to just touch on here. The, the origins of not just gathering together, but, but specifically gathering together for what we are doing right now. On Sunday morning, where does that come from? Is there precedent for that in the Bible? We saw, we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts that the church at least starts meeting together on Saturday mornings. They meet together in the synagogues on the Sabbath for Worship, And we know that by the time 1 Corinthians is written, that the church is also gathering together on Sundays. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 says this, On the first day of the week, or on Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. So at some point, there is this addition of a Sunday worship service. Very early on, the church begins to gather on Sundays to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. This day of worship was so significant that by the time the book of Revelation is written, the Apostle John actually refers to his Sunday as the Lord's Day. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And here's how I, I see this develop in the book of Acts. First, as we've seen, 
People are, are gathering together for worship on Saturday mornings in the synagogue for the Sabbath worship service. But as you can imagine, this is inadequate for all of the teaching, all of the exposition that would, would be necessary for the gospel. This worship that centers around Jesus. And so in addition to gathering on Saturday morning, the people also began to gather on the Lord's Day. There's something that's really confusing, though. The Jewish reckoning of days is from sundown to sundown. So the Sabbath actually begins on Friday night, and it ends on Saturday night at sundown. So people, the church, would gather together on Saturday mornings on the Sabbath for worship in the synagogue, and then they would gather together once it was the first day of the week, which was actually Saturday night at the beginning for this time of worship. This is apparently when the church begins to gather together just as their own. So you look at Acts chapter 20. On the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Rest easy. Paul's sermon wasn't 16 hours long. It was probably only four hours long, which is really an encouragement to all of you, right? This was a service that most likely took place on Saturday night, and it goes not from Sunday morning until midnight of Monday morning, but Saturday around 8 p.m. until Sunday morning around 12 a.m. But at some point, the number of Gentile Christians outnumbers the number of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians had no compunction to continue to, to observe the Sabbath. What's more, they were, they were typically still working on Saturday nights when the church would be meeting together, and so it made it a challenge for them to gather for these worship services. And to make things even more confusing, Greeks reckon days the exact same way we do. So they would go from midnight to midnight. So when they were to gather together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, it made no sense to them to gather together on Saturday night because that was still the seventh day. Confusing, right? And so at some point, they decided because it was so important to gather together to worship the Lord, the, the resurrection, to celebrate the resurrection, because it was so important to make sure so many, as many people as were able, could gather together and worship together. They moved their worship services from Saturday nights to Sunday mornings, oftentimes before dawn. So that way everyone could worship together before they went to their jobs because it wasn't until about the 300s when Sunday became a day of rest. You see how foundational the resurrection is to the gathering of God's people. Not only did Jesus' resurrection make them a community, but it is also so essential to their worship that they bend over backwards to move their worship gatherings from one day of the week to another, so that people could gather together to celebrate the resurrection. This is really the heart of the worship of God's people as they gather together. They gather together to celebrate and proclaim the resurrection. God's people gather together to celebrate and to proclaim the resurrection. They proclaim the resurrection, the gospel, when they gather together, and they're strengthened and encouraged in the faith, and they intentionally gather together on Sundays so that people could see beyond a shadow of a doubt that this gathering 
is a celebration that God's people are gathered together in this day of joy because death has been defeated and the Lord Jesus reigns. We could look at a whole lot more, a whole lot more uh, from, from Acts, from the Gospels, from Paul's letters, from the rest of the New Testament. I just want us to, to take a moment and really synthesize what we've seen so far, some implications for us today. How do we apply this to, to our lives today and, and our gatherings, the priorities that we have? Just seven observations. I'm not going to give a lot of com- commentary with these. Hopefully this ties everything together for you. First is this. As we see from the very beginning of Acts, the church is the primary means through which Jesus continues to work in the world. The church is the primary means through which Jesus continues to work in the world. God works in individuals as Christians. But in the Bible, it is never outside the context of the church. It's never outside of the context of the church. The idea of a Lone Ranger Christian or a biological family considering themselves a church It's absolutely unthinkable in the early church. Why is that? Well, as we saw, it's because the church is the family of God. The church is the family of God. One of the reasons why the church gathers together is because it's a family reunion every week, and not the the bad kind. The kind that, that you long for and love. Yes, there are conflicts. Yes, there are differing opinions. Yes, the relationships can be hard. But Jesus... And in Mark chapter 3 and and multiple other times in the Gospels, prioritizes the family of God over biological family. He says we gather together with our true brothers and sisters when we gather together. We don't gather with the church. We're not gathering with our family. Third is this. Christians have never not gathered with other Christians. They've never not gathered with other Christians. That's very plain from the book of Acts. It just, it just doesn't happen. To be a Christian without gathering with other Christians whenever possible, and I want to I emphasize that, whenever possible, because I don't want this to be a sermon of, of condemnation. If you were at home for the pandemic, or if you work on Sundays and, and it's hard for you to gather together with God's people, that's, that's not what this is focused on. Whenever possible, God's people have gathered together as a church. To be a Christian without gathering together with other Christians is just not found in the Bible. Fourth, similar vein, Christians gathered in their homes and also in larger gatherings whenever it was possible. The idea that the early church was this this house church movement of Bible studies, it just doesn't have any biblical support Now, yes, at times, the church met in houses, but that was not because that's what the real church does as much as because of necessity, whether it was because of persecution or whether because they didn't have any other larger place to meet. Whenever it was possible, they would find a place that was large enough to meet 
whether it was the temple in Jerusalem, whether it was outside of the city walls in Philippi, whether it was the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, they would find a place where they could meet together whenever and wherever possible. Fifth, we see that from the very beginning, Christians gather together at least weekly with other Christians, at least weekly with other Christians. Gathering with other believers is a priority from the outset of the church. The church in Jerusalem met together daily. I'm frankly a little relieved that we don't do that, so that way I don't have to create or write up seven sermons for you each and every week. The church in Jerusalem met together daily as the church spreads throughout the rest of the world. They meet for worship at least weekly, and I say at least weekly just because we can't confidently say that they met more than that. At first, this was on Saturday mornings, and then it was Saturday nights, and then gradually it became Sunday mornings. Focus is less on the day and more on the fact that people were actually gathering together. Two more. Christian gatherings have always primarily been about worship. Always primarily been about worship. We saw that this is one of the primary reasons why the people of God gathered together on Sunday. It's the day of resurrection because it was a day of joy. It was a day of celebration that God had created this new people, this new people in Jesus Churches always gathered together, not primarily for fellowship, though that's a good thing, not primarily to hang out, which is again a good thing, but to worship Jesus and to celebrate what he has done for his people. And finally, the word has always been central to the gathered people of God. It's always been central to the gathered people of God. There's never been a time where the people of God have not gathered around the word of God to hear God speak. There's never been a time when the people of God have not gathered to hear the word of God explained and applied. This is central to the church. It's central to any gathering of the church, the word of God. So why do we gather? The sermon's called Why Gather. We should probably answer that question, right? Why do we gather? There's there's many reasons we could give. We could say that we gather because God's people have always done so. We could say we gather because we're better together than we are alone. We could say we gather together because we're stunting our spiritual growth. If we don't, we could say that... We gather together because the church is our family. We say we gather together because that's part of obedience to Jesus. We could list dozens of reasons with biblical evidence for why we are called to gather together. But I think at the heart of this is simply this. Why gather? It's because God gathers his people and God receives glory. In gathering his people together, God receives glory. That's the reason, at the core, why we gather together. It's because God himself is the one who gathers his people together. When God calls a people, he doesn't call them to live isolated lives, but to join his family. And when the people of God gather together, it is for and to the glory of God. This is our calling as Christians. It's, it's, not, it's not just an obligation. 
It is such a joy. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's hard. But it's such a joy to be a part of the family of God. Not just as a son or a daughter of God, but also a brother, a sister of the people of God. Why do we gather? Because in gathering his people, God receives glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people that gather together whenever it is possible. That we would see the incredible joy that is ours, that you have brought us into a family, a new people. Thank you for that gift, God. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.